0: birds chirping. I'm cool with that. Let's do it. Hola, que pasa mi amigos? Happy Monday. How are you? It is me once again, Justin. And this week will, will be a little different here at the Chocolate Croissants podcast. I'm actually going to be re-introing, not sure if that's a word, but I like it, uh, an old episode. Now, which episode, you may ask? Well, if you haven't peeked at your phone, or what your phone downloaded, rather, uh, or what you may have just downloaded. It is actually a re-air of episode 20 with Mr. Daniel Beretta, uh, which is an episode that Jordan, Matt, and I are, are very fond of, and uh, it's definitely a fan favorite uh, in the chocolate croissants community. So if, uh, if you haven't heard this uh, since week 20 or episode 20 of this podcast, where now we're up to 55, uh, I think it'll be a good refresher. We're definitely going to have Daniel... Back on very soon to talk about uh, what's been going on since we since we recorded that episode. Uh, if you haven't heard it before, strap in. I think you will. Uh, you'll really enjoy this episode. Uh, Daniel has an incredible story, uh, and really, instead of previewing it, I'll just let him do the talking uh, in the episode, which is coming up very shortly. Uh, quickly, I want to give a shout out to Rode Mike. Uh, as always, I'm using their NT USB microphone to record this intro. It's super easy, it's plug and play, etc, cetera, etc, cetera. you know the deal, Rode, com to check out everything they have to offer. Okay, that's it for me. Quick, easy, nothing dirty here, super easy intro. Uh, please enjoy episode 55, the re-air of episode 20 with Mr. Daniel Bereda. Hey everybody. We're here with uh Daniel Beretta, who uh is one of my really good friends. And Daniel and I we we met in school three semesters ago. And yes, pronouns, pal. Justin here. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> Justin here. And uh, our guest today is Daniel Beretta. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Uh, it's it's Beretta. Beretta. And uh and it's only going to take me you now two years to to learn his last name. So Daniel Beretta is one of my favorite people, one of my really, really good friends. We met two years ago in the nutrition dietetic program at school, and uh, he literally saved my ass that semester. as was my first semester back to school. And uh, I wouldn't have made it through that semester and subsequently the other ones without him teaching me and holding my hand and walking me through chemistry. And uh, aside from that, Daniel is just a... Uh, He's a wealth of knowledge, and, and he's got. I love having conversations with him just because of everything he's gone through and where he is currently. And uh, I love the things that he's into, all, all the, uh, the, the different crazy things that we can speak about, which we'll talk about on this podcast. But uh, Dan is just a, a wonderful person. He's an inspiration to all of us, and we're really pumped to have him on the podcast. So uh, check it out. Okay. Dr. Daniel Barretta. Welcome, Daniel.
1: I appreciate it, guys. Uh, thanks for the great introdu- introduction, uh, Justin. And I haven't seen you guys in a while either. It's been yeah. a couple months at this point, right?
0: Yeah, last time I saw you, it was a few days before you were about to get your surgery.
1: Right, right. And uh, just so nobody is, uh, that, that's listening uh, doesn't really understand what we're talking about, huh? I was uh, in a motorcycle accident in 2011. Uh, which took the use of my left arm. It was paralyzed from the shoulder down, um, really no use at all. And over the, over the years, I guess, I, I decided that I wanted to kind of get rid of it. It was dead weight. It, it, it kind of slowed me down. It, it, there was a lot of different factors that went into it. But uh, June June 5th of this year, I decided to amputate above the elbow, and I, I really couldn't be happier. You know, I'm glad to see you on this side. Go ahead.
0: So give us a few examples of what life was like uh, having the arm but not having function of it. So how did it get in the way?
1: So there was a couple different ways. I mean, there, there, there were physical things and there were mental blocks. Um, I, it just one off the top of my head that I can remember, uh, me and Justin, uh, he had been training me for a while uh, in weightlifting, uh, kickboxing, and stuff like that. And uh, we decided one time beforehand that we were going to do a little, we, we both wrestled in high school. And we were going to have a little wrestling match. And it was going to, you know, we, we got into it. Uh, we clinched up and everything. And he ended up taking me over his back. And I didn't realize it until my I stood up, but my entire left hand was black. Uh, I, I had done something. I, d- I didn't know how it got twisted up, but I ended up having to go to the hospital just because I had no idea if I broke it or not. I didn't really have pain receptors in that part of my arm. There were still some in there, just not that part. And so I ended up having to go to the emergency room. I spent a couple hours there uh, just for them to tell me it was sprained, nothing it was really wrong, where this, where that. And it was just, uh, there's little uh, like things like that where I always felt like I was babysitting. You know, I There was nothing that I could do in my life where I could just do it, go and go and do it. I was always thinking, uh, cause it was limp. It, it really has no, I have no control over it. It was like, um, a separate entity from me, you know? And so, uh, that was really tough. And, uh, just the mental aspects as well. Um, I can speak on that. I, uh, you know, it was hard for me at first to really feel normal. Um, I felt like I was less than a, uh, for a long time. You know, I didn't feel complete. I, I, when I saw the people, they seemed complete and I felt like something that was very, you know, still broken. And uh, it, it got even harder when I realized that I guess I could see my disability and I couldn't know when other people were seeing it. And so I was always self-conscious in that factor. I didn't I didn't like that I always had to tell people Uh, my disability before they realized it, it was kind of hard to bring up. And now, you know, now that it's gone, people, when people see me, they they recognize it immediately. And that's big for me. That was very big because I don't have to go through the whole spiel. Like, you know, if somebody asks me to hold a clipboard while I'm already holding something, I don't have to go, well, I can't. And then they look at me weird. And then I have to go, well, this, 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 you know, and it's just uh, a lot of different things like that have kind of led me to this decision, which has been life changing, to be honest.
0: I'm glad you brought that up. And I know we're going to dig into a lot of the mental aspect of your journey. And I think it's so important for people to hear because there are these different aspects of ourselves and different ways that we experience, not only ourselves, but the world. So clearly there were physical, uh, either limitations or just inconveniences because you had, uh, the way you called it, this, this dead weight, um, but then also the mental aspect of that has and carries its own weight in itself. Uh, but going back to the physical part, do you know actually how much weight the arm was?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I meant to weigh myself after at the hospital. I never did. Uh, but it's, it's, it's such a relief, I have to imagine. It was at least, you know, 5, 10 pounds, if not more. You know, it's just, it's such, I, I, it used to feel a lot of strain, uh, especially like long, while I was standing a long time. You know what I mean? I just don't feel as much anymore. I feel it feels a lot more free, uh, which is just—it's been amazing, man.
2: I remember when we were working out. At one point, we were talking about uh, like phantom pain, sort of, mm-hmm. that you were experiencing. Mm-hmm. I, I think you said it felt like pins and needles, almost, if like it was numb, but you sure. couldn't really do anything about it. So, do you have any of that now? And is that what it felt like when you did have the the, the limb?
1: Um, yeah, that is how it felt. It was it, it how it, it, the best way to describe it when beforehand it was like, like if you, uh, if your arm were to fall asleep per, per se, you know, how you get that kind of like weird, like needle feel in your arm. Uh, I would feel like that, uh, at times. Um, I've also had like, uh, the best way I can describe it is like almost like a, a shot of electricity shooting through my arm, like really painful, uh, really quick at times. Um, it's a little different now. I, I don't I guess I don't notice it as much um today um but especially like right after the uh the surgery um I actually had to look this up cuz I didn't really understand it at all um it it felt like so there's this 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 sensation called telescoping uh in the amputee world it's basically where my my arm is cut off above my elbow um but after the surgery I could feel my hand Right where my amputation stops. And that's why they call it telescoping because it's collapsing on itself, which was a very odd sensation. I didn't like it at first, but it's, it's, it's either to the point where it doesn't happen or I just don't notice it. You know, it's, it's gotten very normal.
2: Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, what was the recovery process like? Was it pretty quick?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh I was out of there in two days, and that was just will you know I've been in and out of hospitals uh for a long time at this point i've had a few different surgeries, and uh I've had some bad experiences with surgeries, so I like to get out of hospitals usually as quick as possible,
0: um, so that's physical recovery but but so far it's been about two months. What's the mental recovery
1: man it's um it was quick, you know, I think. I think it was it completed a mental process that I didn't, I wasn't able to before. If that makes sense, you know, I've been carrying. The way I can equate it is like I had a lot of like there was a lot of things wrong when it first had when the accident first happened in 2011, and uh, it felt like um, like I was almost carrying a dead family member with me. That's how I felt at times. You know, it was rough, and uh, this kind of was like the end of that grieving process i guess you know
2: so i don't know i mean i I know we have some topics to dig into but but i would be curious to hear and i'm sure the listeners be curious to hear about the accident since we're kind of on the topic if you're down to talk about it at all of course man of course just to explain what happened and then understanding that that family member you're talking about carrying around for six years
1: right yeah and i can get into that um so in 2011, uh, I was currently in the Army. I'm um, retired now. But, um, and we had actually just came home from an Iraq deployment. Uh, we were over there for 13 months. And uh, when, when you're over there, you make a lot of money. Uh, and you have nothing to spend it on. So we, a bunch of us came home and bought motorcycles. Uh, we went through the motorcycle uh, training sessions, everything you have to do to get your license and everything like that. And I had been riding for like a month or two. Um, we we were getting pretty confident, a bunch of us. I was out with my friend that day on May second, two thousand eleven. Uh, we got up pretty early. We just wanted to ride around. You know, we went out to his uh, ex wife's house to drop some stuff off for his son, and we rode around most of the day. And uh, it got to the point we were. Uh, it was like nine ten o'clock. It's getting a little dark. Out. We we had to get up early for a run the next morning, and we decided to call it a night. Um, and then we we were riding down this road uh about a mile away from the base and um you know i i'm riding lead um he's a few feet behind me and we uh i don't know this this is where it gets a little hazy um you know i next thing i remember i'm on my back and uh, i can fill in the blanks like i guess uh, after a- after i had spoken with a lot of the people that were there my friend the police you know some of the uh some of the people that stopped and helped um there was a man towing a trailer in front of me at the stoplight and i was slowing down i guess for a red light and then it went green and i accelerated through it and i guess i i, I from what i understand i i saw it at the last second and i tried to get around the right side and which was probably a mistake. I, I, my entire bike missed the trailer, but I caught it with my shoulder at like 35 miles per hour. And so it nearly took my shoulder off on the spot. The, the doctors, when I, when I woke up, the doctors told me it was near amputation. They had to surgically uh, reattach my entire shoulder uh, back together. And so I do remember laying on the pavement. Um, I remember my friend uh, Aaron Johnson, uh, which served with me. Uh, he was just h- kind of hovering over me. And there's this other guy, I, I had no idea who he was, um but he had his shirt off uh, cuz he was he was compressing my shoulder um and he was just asking me all these questions you know where are you from um you know where do you uh where do you serve you know uh, what do you do just trying to keep me awake you know cuz i was i was kind of in and out at that point um from when, and from what i understand uh, i i broke some of the main arteries in my left shoulder so I was bleeding out pretty fast. I lost, by the time the ambulance had got there, I lost half of my blood supply. Uh, Yes, it was was wild, man. Um, But I I made it through. You know, I woke up. uh, My parents had already been there. Uh, My command called uh, my mom um, right right away, and she was there before I even woke up. She drove 12 hours in the middle of the night uh, to come see me, which was amazing. You know, and I had a lot of support, and it it was tough, man. It was really hard, but... um, I don't know. I'm here today. You know, it's been an awesome experience the whole way
0: around. Do you wish in that moment that the the doctors had amputated then?
1: Uh, That's a good question. I think other people have asked me that too. No. um, I think at first I needed it. I didn't feel normal. I didn't feel normal from the minute that it happened. Um, I felt really alien compared to everybody else in the world. I didn't... um, I really didn't even want to live to be honest um for like the first six months i just woke up every day thinking like like why didn't he just kill me you know why didn't god just kill me when he did this um but no i i, I really needed it 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 gave me some sort of normalcy when i didn't really have any at all you know so that that was it was good at that point uh obviously uh the end result is that i wanted it gone um but yeah Uh, it it was, it was good all around the way it worked out.
0: I'm curious just because you use the word God and we're going to get into not only the trauma of this accident, but there's just a lot of shit that you've been through in a relatively short time. Um, is religion a thing in your life? Um, because I know oftentimes it really isn't for me, but in darker moments, I will turn to, uh, this internal thing that I will just call God. You know what I'm saying? I do. I do. Um, You know, religion's never really
1: played a a heavy role in my life. Um, I think that was just an outlet for me at the moment, you know, just thinking that there is something bigger. You know, I I needed something to cling to, and I figured that, you know, but at at the same time, I was saying, you know, God can't exist because he would have just killed me. That's how I felt right away. I said, God doesn't exist because he wouldn't have let me live. Like this, you know, and that was tough. Um, I mean, and I've had different um, different things that have gone on, uh, like drug addiction. Which they rely if you go to an NA or AA meeting, they rely heavily on God, and so I've had to navigate that as well as my own personal uh, venture into Buddhism, which isn't necessarily about God, but it's about well-being and uh, kind of like a, a moral sense of society. You know, and so there is it's been an evolution um but yeah it, it was it was it was me really kind of just being vain in the moment, you know, just kind of cursing God if he was there, you know
0: it's interesting you brought that up because obviously through Justin, you and I have known each other uh, for a good amount of time now, but that's the first time I've ever heard you bring up Buddhism, and I don't think I ever have with you, but over ten years ago. Uh, I was introduced to it and would go to these like actual sittings with monks. Right. Uh, and that was really the first time that any sort of just philosophy resonated with me. And it seemed like, okay, this at least makes enough sense and doesn't feel like there's this like dogma of, of ritual and, and things like that. Uh, and it really gave me perspective on life. Um, I, so were you at this point already Addicted to any sort of drug, or this came post the accident?
1: So this was afterwards. Um, after the accident, I was um I was housed in a few different. I was in the hospital in Georgia for a little while, and they um they started it off. I think they were giving me fentanyl patches, uh, prescription for Dilated and a prescription for oxycodone uh, altogether, which is kind of insane. And this was yeah.
0: just for the pain.
1: Just for the pain. And when I, so after that, I was transferred to Walter Reed uh, Medical Center in D.C., which is one of the, it's like world-renowned for for military hospitals, great hospital. Um, and they just never let the foot off the gas with the prescription pills. Now, I didn't help, you know, I, I was kind of, you know, a month or two in it. I'm, I'm taking fentanyl every day because I have a patch on. So I'm fully addicted and I'm fully aware of what's going on and i played the cards the way i wanted to play them sometimes i i, I exaggerated things i told them uh, i needed more or you know i didn't help myself um but as drug addicts i mean that's kind of always the case it's it's it, it, withdrawal is a scary thing you know it's scarier than the idea of dying from drugs i can put it that way and so usually we'll do whatever you know to to get our fix
0: But when you said, I guess in your own words, but like you were kind of playing the game with them to get more of the drugs, was that because you really had intense pain or you think you were actually physically and or psychologically addicted by that point?
1: Yeah, I I think uh, like for, at first, of course, I needed the pain, I needed it for pain. Um, but there were a lot of things I was I was hiding from myself at that point too. You know, uh, I was in a, a deep depression. Um, and
0: were you receiving counseling in this process?
1: I was receiving the mandatory, but I wasn't seeking it. You know, I had counselors that were, you know, um they were put on my case and I would see them on a regular basis, but I wouldn't open up to them. I mean, I was to the point where I didn't feel like anybody could help me. I was drowning. You know, I was drowning. I had no idea what to do. I didn't, there was no idea what to do because I didn't want to do anything. I wanted like, there were, like I said, there was, there was a six month period where I thought every day I wanted to die, you know? And.
2: Well, what stopped you from, suicide
1: ah that's a good question um i think i was just i was never i never wanted to do it i just wanted to die if that makes sense i never felt like um i would be able to take my own life and it was just kind of me putting one foot in front of the other every day and just trying to make something of it even when i was just you know there was a point after the accident um I was having these nightmares, um, I guess nightmare isn't the the best word, but it's to describe the feeling. I think it fits. Um, the dream would be different, but it would always, it would always, it would always have the same theme, um, regardless of what's happening in it. You know, I didn't have my arm, uh, to begin with. And then progressively over the dream, um, it would come back until I could fully use it. And at that moment, I would always snap into reality, wake up, and it was so real, my first instinct would be to move my arm every single morning. And uh, that was tough, man. I mean, it was, it was to the point where I was like, I was crying every morning, man.
0: So you were having this trauma uh, from this accident, and the repercussions of the accident. You also served over a year in Iraq.
1: It's true, yeah.
0: So I mean were you carrying the weight of that as well?
1: Um not so much. I mean I was always when I was over there it was um we were in a good position. Uh we were at like a, a central operating base instead of a forward operating base. It's more support. Um and I my job for um, for the most part, over there it was pretty mundane. Uh, for like the first half, I was doing like a, like a desk job, working like tech support for these these random people that would have computer problems or radio problems or phone problems or anything else. Just working a regular tech job. And for the second half, I got put on this uh, this team uh, for the general, for the commanding general of the base. Uh, he would have to be uh, like at different meetings across Iraq or even into Turkey and stuff like that, meeting with generals or, you know, important officials in the community. And I was tasked to be his basically uh, one of his uh, comm team. Uh, we, had a, we had a special Black Hawk helicopter fitted for the general where it had this amazing uh, kind of technology. Uh, it's kind of, uh, they call it Blue Force Tracker. Um, but it's just like, um, it's, it's basically a map as a screen with a map of where you are, uh, your helicopter route. And it has all the different units around you, maybe, uh, on the ground or flying by or whatever. And he would be able to talk to anybody that's coming by or or where we're going, or I would map out the route for him and pretty much anything common, common related I I would uh, do for him. So I got to see most of Iraq from like a bird's eye view, which was amazing, um, and just being just being able to see it from there was was kind of breathtaking, seeing, like, the Euphrates River. Uh, when you see it from that, that vantage point, it looks, like, man-made. It, the, the curves that it takes are just incredible. And, uh, you know, we got to fly up north to Mosul, where sometimes we'd be flying over a place that it feels like home. There's grass, there's parks, there's houses. Um, and, you know, as far south as Baghdad, we flew over Baghdad uh in the middle of the night and it looked like Las Vegas like streets are packed and and there's neon signs everywhere i'm like where the hell am i you know and uh but yeah it's it's a very different experience compared to where you are there i was fortunate enough to never come under any combat situation um yeah i mean it, my experience over there was very good very positive overall i
0: think um so it is just interesting that with that type of experience in a sense it seems like psychologically you got out relatively clean and then it ends up being this this accident post all that where where life gets a bit darker for you. Um I know we're kind of jumping um different places in your past real quick. I want to jump into the present like right now where you are in your body mm-hmm. and you know you're you're emotional right now and rightly so. And I think that I mean to me that's like the definition of what a man is to like fully feel and express one's truth. And it seems like that not only in our culture, but maybe also in a military culture that isn't uh, the most socially acceptable. Would you agree with that?
1: I would. I would definitely agree with that. Um, The military is a different beast. Uh, You got to, you got to be a man there. You definitely do. And what does that mean? I think it's uh most of what society thinks is being a man you know not having your feelings get in the way, you know, uh not having to cry in front of people and being able to deal with everything yourself and not kind of seeking the help that you may need sometimes. I can't I can't speak for the entire army of course. Um but I have seen that type of behavior uh just in general and I think it I think a lot of people see that too. Um, I think, um, a lot of veterans that go through some of these issues also understand that, Hey, you know, I need to, regardless of what people think, you know, I need to get help from me. You know, there's 22 veterans, uh, committing suicide, uh, every day, I think in this country. And there, there, there's a reason for that. You know, there's a, there's a s- society that, uh, built in the army that's creating that. I believe it, it shouldn't be that high. There's no reason for it to be that high. And for it to be there now, I think a lot of people need to look at what's going on, you know.
0: So I know this is the first time you're really publicly sharing this. So how does it feel right now actually going through this process? Uh, In regards to what? In regards to being vulnerable, feeling your feelings, and actually sharing your, your history and your truth with the world.
1: Um I feel I feel really good about it. I mean, I think I've had practice with this before just uh kind of that's what drug treatment does to you. You know, going through NA and AA and rehab and stuff like that. I mean, that's really what it, it's about being vulnerable and you know, uh I, I, at this point I I feel like my vulnerability is more of um uh I don't know the best way to put it. Kind of like um it helps me you know, it, it it especially with my situation and my story, I think me being vulnerable in front of people really uh, gives them an opening into me, and and it gives me a lot of respect. You know, and just a way into people's heart to let them to be vulnerable as well. You know, um, I remember uh, I was at a um, a meeting one time, an AA meeting. I think it was AA. Um, and this guy was up there talking, he was sharing his story and it, it was pretty long. He was, people found it pretty funny cause he was just talking about really crazy stuff, aliens and all this craziness. Um, but I, I, re- I remember sharing afterwards cause he, he had such a great point. You know, he said that, um, he said there have been many men that have done this before me, you know, much more manly and strong and, uh, better men. Um, but some of them aren't here anymore, you know, and, uh, and I am. And, uh, I mean, it was, it, it resonated a lot with me, man. I, I shared a story with him, uh, that I wasn't too keen on sharing for a while. Um, when, when, when the accident first happened and I was at Walter Reed, um, uh, <laughs> It's such a crazy issue to have, but uh, there was this day uh, I had, my, my shoes came untied, okay, and I didn't know what the fuck to do, because I, I can't tie my shoes. I still can't tie my shoes, um, but I knew that I wasn't going to ask another soldier, and I knew I wasn't going to ask another man to tie my own shoes, and I think I walked around for for 45 minutes to an hour, look, <laughs> looking for somebody to tie my shoes, which is, it's an insane idea. It's an insane idea. And um, I'm lucky that the issue that I had in the moment wasn't life-threatening, you know, because my idea of what a man is was getting in my way of seeking help, you know what I mean, just to bring that all the way back around. Um, And that's a lesson I've had to learn. You know, I have to be my own man and my own definition of a man, you know, regardless of what that means to save my own life. You know,
0: I really hope you sharing these stories, uh, this helps break down uh, the idea of what people think of when they say about being a man. And I know we see this with um, like Jordan and I, and I think Matt as well. We can we can see this with, with our dads and their generation and you know, just kind of sucking it up and trudging forward and not sharing your feelings. And, and I have so much respect for you and admiration for you being being vulnerable and sharing your stories and and as Jordan would say, sharing your truth. And um, I really hope this becomes the new norm and more socially acceptable. And and I know it's something that Daniel and I we train together in uh, in martial arts and, and we both we, we love watching martial arts. And recently we both watched, um, John Jones versus Daniel Cormier. Mm-hmm. And you put, you know, you put so much into it. And, um, the, the loser of the fight that night, he ended up, he, he was crying. And this was like public for, in front of millions of people. And there, there was a bit of, uh, there was like a, there was a bit of like backlash from people saying that this is not acceptable. You're a man, you know, tighten up that lip kind of thing of like, you know, what are you doing crying on national TV? And, and there were, there were fighters that, that I think you would think of those kind of people just like, uh, you know, a soldier, a warrior, um, you know, g- throwing down for him, going to bat for him and saying like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like, you know, this guy puts everything into it. And if, if that's, if, if he needs to break down then and not go backstage and break down, like who the fuck cares? Let the, let this guy have his moment and do his thing. And I think, I really hope that in seeing that I have more faith and faith is a bit restored that that people are breaking down what I think is a misconception that you have to be, you know, a certain way to be a man. And I I really hope that you sharing your story will help others be able to share theirs and, uh, and be able to be vulnerable and, and share their feelings. Speaking of misconceptions, we have a bunch of questions from people in the Facebook group. Uh, And one from Sean Gilbert from Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, He was more talking about misconceptions about military or drug users um, and asking if you, Daniel, wanted to clear up any um, or just share your perspective uh, on how maybe you feel uh, the world thinks of both people in the military and also drug users.
1: Yeah, I spent a little time thinking about this question. It's a good one and I appreciate it. I don't know too many misconceptions about the Army. I, I was thinking about that for a while. Um, I do. I, I will say that just like any population in the world, um, the, the Army is just made up of regular people. And so I think a lot of people get carried away. Not to say that people in the Army don't deserve to be thanked for the service and such, but you don't know these people and you don't know what they've done. I mean, there's been a lot of terrible things that have happened in the army. I mean, you can point to Abu Ghraib, uh, where the the soldiers were taking pictures of like bodies on the ground and and like peeing on them or whatever they were doing. Um, and that's not somebody you would want to thank. But who knows who these other people are? I I, I remember in a, in rehab, I heard a story of a guy that uh, he was in Iraq and he him and his unit would go around raiding pharmacies in Iraq for pills. And I'm not trying to paint the army in a bad light. I just want to make people understand, like, like we're just a popular, we're regular people. You know, we, you may look up to us, but we are not, we're not, we're not this crazy, you know, driven force that just does what they're told. And, and, and that's it. You know, we're, we're people like anybody else. And we make mistakes and some of those mistakes are really big, Uh, but in the same light, I mean uh there's some really great people out there. You have the Pat Tillman story and, and things like that. And so uh people should just remember that too that it's 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 not some mythical
0: force that we have. It's just regular people that just decided to take this job, you know. Can you go back a bit and tell us why you decided to enter the army?
1: Uh yeah, I can do that. Um I was kind of after high school, I really didn't have any plans. I, I in high school, I was kind of um I didn't really care too much, you know, I, I got bad grades, I got enough to get by, and I never really thought about the future, um, and that's probably uh, because of some issues at home and stuff that I had to deal with, um, but I ended up kind of uh, just just walking through life without really any thought as to what I was doing, and I worked at Walmart, uh, like, unloading trucks, and I delivered pizza for a place called Pat's Pizza, uh, but other than that, like, I didn't know what I was doing. and. I ended up getting in trouble. Um, not to get too specific, but my my father ended up saying, you know, you, you probably need to get away from this area. It's not good for you, you know. And you know, I was in the military. Um, it helped me, and maybe it can help you as well. And it did. It, it was a really good experience, you know. I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to cast a bad shadow because it was a great experience for me, but. I don't know if I'd want to do it again. You know, um, it was very good for me to learn some of the lessons. You know, like yeah, just knowing that you're capable of more than, or I'm capable of more than I thought I could. You know, uh, and any obstacle that was thrown my way, I could make my way through it. Um, and I think that was that was an awesome thing to learn. Um, learning discipline, integrity, and and things like this. Uh, it's 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 very big ideas in the military you know you you have to kind of live these things um which is great and just to go back to the the question i think he also about he asked about drug addicts as well um i think there's there's this crazy idea that like drug addicts are lazy and they're stupid and they don't want to do anything um nobody nobody at, at, at five years old say i'm gonna grow up and be a drug addict you know that's not how it works. Um, they're lost. You know, they're really lost. And they're so lost that they're willing to risk their lives uh, for this thing that makes them not feel lost, you know. And so we're, we're kind of in this weird spot in a society where we're being overtaken by drugs and we don't know how to fix it because people are feeling empty. And when we can get those people back on track, that's, that's when we can really fix this thing.
0: You know, when you were in that space, can you think of something that you needed that would have helped that you weren't getting?
1: Ah, oh, man. Um, I just needed to get back on track. I didn't know what I wanted out of life, you know, and now I do. And. The thing is that like even after I stopped doing drugs, I didn't really know where I was going. And that was a risky place to be in uh, because it's very easy to go back to something when you're not you're not driving towards anywhere, you know. And so, um, yeah, I mean, purpose, purpose was what I was looking for a lot of the time. It felt very empty and I just felt like a truck stuck in the mud, just just spinning tires, you know. So yeah, that purpose is the is, is the main thing I think a lot of people are looking for in this life, where we're just kind of working a nine to five job and going home and paying the bills and going to the grocery store and going to sleep and doing it again. And wh- where does that go? Where 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 is your ambition? You know, where's your drive if you're doing that type of life? If you're just wor- working to get by, you know, it's it's I think for a lot of people it's not there, and that's why we're turning to heroin, cocaine, you know, anything we can get our hands on, you know.
0: And to argue that point, because I know for all of us here, that's not, or hasn't always been like the desirable type of lifestyle for us. Um, But I can see in the sense that I don't think work necessarily has to be a passion, but maybe earning and supporting a family, that can be the purpose, right? So I don't think it's just a, a nine to five, but I think if there really isn't any purpose or vision or meaning Uh, of the way that one spends the majority of their life, I think that's where the emptiness can start to grow.
1: I I completely agree with that. You're right. And uh, I think there's plenty of purpose outside of work. I mean, even if it is just your family. I mean, my my father loves his family and he'd do anything for them. So he, he enjoys going to work every day and doing his best that he can do. I think he also enjoys his job. But I think that's one of his main drivers is his family. He's got quite a few kids that he's still taking care of um, and, and a wife and everything. Yeah. And there's, there's plenty of other hobbies that people can get into, but just for me, like I didn't have any of it, you know, I didn't have a family that I was taking care of. I didn't have a hobby outside of work and I didn't really, especially after I got the Walter Reed, I was in the army, but I wasn't working necessarily. I wasn't really doing anything. I was going back to my room uh on base and just just sitting around doing nothing man it was a, it was a miserable existence and it was very easy to get addicted to drugs
0: to to tie up another loose end uh for those listening can you go through the progression that got you into then doing drugs
1: uh starting from where exactly
0: i mean i guess take it from what point i i guess you want to go from the prescriptions they were heavily medicating you mm-hmm. and you were willingly they're willingly giving you whatever you really wanted and you were playing it up a bit. And then how does it go from that into using street drugs?
1: Yeah, sure. I can do that. Um, I mean, I grew up in Balt, uh, near Baltimore, uh, just North of, and so I was in DC at the, at Walter Reed and, um, you know, they're throwing medication at me like crazy. Um, like I said, fentanyl, diluted, uh, Percocet, uh, anything I wanted pretty much. And they, they just didn't have any desire to take it down for the longest time. I, Like I said, I played them yeah, as much as I could. You know, it still hurts. You know, I'm in pain. You know, we have surgery coming up. Just keep me on it. And it finally got to the point where they were like, okay, this is enough. Uh, we need to start weaning you off. And I wasn't really interested at that point. I was fully addicted uh, to all these pain medications. And so uh, the area that I grew up in uh, is in in harford county it's it's known for a lot of prescription medication and i knew a lot of people growing up that were you know doing things like that and so after they decided to take me off of the medication i started making phone calls um and there was this one guy um i'd rather not name him just because yeah okay um but he ended up answering and he's like we're not really doing prescription medication anymore we're doing heroin and i signed up right up for it man i kind of i kind of knew that heroin was basically the same thing uh just the illegal version and you know i i met up with them and um we i picked them up in harford county we drove drove to baltimore and i started you know buying 300 worth of heroin every couple of days man and it was just it was wild. It was just so easy. I could get as much as I wanted and I could just drown everything out. Drown all the worries, all the, the depression, the sorrow. Um, I didn't have to worry about my situation anymore. And that's what I was really running away from a lot of that is like I said, I wanted to die. So there's nothing I liked about myself, you know, and so I could just run away. I could just not deal with it twenty four seven and it was much easier to just drown it out than to actually have to deal with it, you know.
2: Yeah. So there's, well, uh, there's two questions. One I have, which maybe we can just save for later because it's more of a... Uh, well, I I mean, I'll, I'll just ask you now. This will change the mood a little bit. Go for it, man. But I'm curious. and Then we'll get to the question from one of our uh, group members. I remember, I forget who was telling me this or where I heard this, but I think during the making of Pulp Fiction, there's an info in Pulp Fiction, there's a scene where John Travolta shoots up heroin. And Uh, I think the story I heard was that he wanted to act that out correctly. So he asked maybe Quentin Tarantino or someone else what it was like to do heroin. And the way that whoever was described it was, it's like getting really drunk on tequila and then getting into a really hot bath. Hmm. And I was just curious if that makes sense to you.
1: Uh, I guess I knew I was never really into alcohol, so I, I I can understand what he's saying. It definitely makes sense. I would say most people that I have been in like rehab with and and have known that have done have had different addictions um, usually say it's better than sex, and that usually works. You know, it's it's better than anything that I have probably ever felt. Um, in just uh oh, in just a in the moment kind of way you know obviously it's terrible uh and it, it had terrible effects on my life um which have and uh, kind of brought me to where i am but in the moment in when when you're actually shooting up i mean it's you can you can feel it go through your veins and go all the way to your head and you get lightheaded and everything melts it is just every single worry that you have is gone, and all you care about is just like that moment where you can just not hear anything.
2: But that's why they call it chasing the dragon because you're never gonna actually catch that again.
1: Not yeah, not like the first time. You can keep upping it and upping it until you overdose or something. But yeah, it's 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 tough to hit the first couple times. I remember my my first time. I I actually started buying heroin and and snorting it. And I I always told myself I was never going to shoot up. I was never going to be that person. Um, but you learn early in rehab that anything that you say you're not going to do is just something you're going to do in time. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing it. I, I just remember my friend, uh, the same guy I was saying earlier, uh, He, w- we would go down there and buy heroin and he would shoot up and I'd snort it and he would feel it instantly. And it looked amazing. And when I would do it, it was just okay. And so, you know, he'd ask me from time to time, do you want me to shoot you up? I, I can do it for you. And I was like, no, no, no. And then one time I, I said yes, and I never looked back from there. I mean, that was probably the, it's just an experience. It, it's hard to put in into words. You know, a lot of people say that about psychedelics. I could probably say the same thing about heroin because it's just hard to really talk, like really express the feeling in words, it's just, it's, it's my, it's mind blowing. Sure.
2: Know? Yeah. Well, so that, that brings me to where my mind went. And then this is a question from uh, our group member, Jeffrey Kerr from Brisbane, Australia. And he wants to know basically at what point did you say enough is enough and give up the needles? What was the final straw for you to realize that you needed to make a change? And then he Uh, eloquently said addiction is a motherfucker Uh,
1: uh, I, i love the question thank you um you know i wish i had some like come to jesus moment that i could sit here and say um but i i don't really have anything like that you know i got i got caught in a very odd situation uh where i was forced to go to rehab i didn't necessarily even want it um i i had just gone down to baltimore to get some more heroin um, and I, I was coming back to the base, uh, in DC, um, and I parked and I'm walking to my room and I see my Sergeant waiting outside for me. And I'm like, what what is going on? And, you know, he, he says, Beretta come here. And, you know, so I go and, you know, he's like, come on, we got to go to your room. I'm like, what are you talking about? Just, just come on. Um, And we walked to my room and it's wide open, doors wide open. And I have a couple military police officers, uh, my commanding officer, my first sergeant, you know, my entire chain of command basically was in my room waiting for me. Um, They, I I started slipping up. I guess I told somebody that I probably shouldn't have told. uh, And they told my command, which went to my room and found some of the empty, you know, pill caps that they, they fill them up in Baltimore with. And then they searched me and found the extra 30 pills in my pocket. And it was basically from, it, it, it was a really bad situation because they had actually thought I was, I had so much heroin on me that they thought I was selling to other soldiers. Uh, and I Quickly, just you know, told them my entire story. That way, that wasn't the case. You know, I was, I, I, I had enough where they thought it w- it wasn't just for my own consumption. That's how bad my addiction had gotten. You know, and so, um, I ended up, you know, the wheel started turning uh, with my command. And, and three to four days later, they were sending me on a plane to Alabama. Uh, to Bradford Health Services uh, inpatient facility, uh, which probably saved my life, man. You know, it's probably it's one of the best experiences I've ever been through.
0: But is that how you were feeling at the time? Was there a sense of relief and finally the truth is out and I can get some help, or was that part of the addiction still fighting that?
2: Well, let me let me tag onto that. Uh, were you uh, were you met with a support system through your chain of command? Like, were they? What was their position? Were they pissed at you, or were they supportive and therefore like, all right, look, we this is a problem. We need to get you healthy. We're sending you away. I mean, what was the tone?
1: Yeah. Um. Just let me let me think real quick. Just to make sure I hit both of you guys. Um. It, well, my initial thought uh, when that happened was, well, first, oh shit, and then uh, you know, I didn't really want to stop at that moment. You know, I did. I so. I guess addiction is tough because I always wanted to stop. You know, I had tried many times before. They were actually, you know, the Army does your analysis tests, and I, I would always be not using at the times when they were they were trying to get a test from me because I was actively trying to stop. But withdrawal is such a motherfucker that it is nearly impossible to get through without some sort of support and help. You know, it's doing that by yourself is, is, is unimaginable, you know? And so, um, it was, it was nice that it was out there. Um, I was m- greeted with mixed, uh, conflicting ideas. You know, there were people that didn't care. I I could definitely tell, uh, they thought I was the scum of the earth, you know? And I, I specifically remember, you know, my sergeant's look on his face when they were pulling needles out of the trunk of my car, you know, and that was that was really tough. Um, but there was one sergeant um, that r- really wanted to help me. Yeah, I think he, I don't know, I guess he thought he knew enough about me uh, to know that, you know, I could really use the help, you know, and it, it, if they got me into treatment, uh, I could really turn this thing around. And I, I'm really indebted to him because he's really the one that kind of changed it from you know just get rid of this guy to you know send him to treatment and then let him do whatever he's going to do after he gets out of the army but at least give him a shot you know and like i said i got i got sent to alabama and I, i i did a lot of resisting at first when i went into treatment like i said i didn't go on there on my own i was forced there by the army um so, you know, we had counseling every day and I just wanted to mask my emotions. I didn't really want to talk about anything. You know, my counselors had a hard time with me for the first couple of weeks. Luckily, I was there for three months and towards the end, some of it sank in, you know. Um, but it was a fight the entire time. And uh, but like I said, it's it, it, it's one of the best things that's ever happened. You know,
0: at what point in treatment do you drop your guard and decide, I think it's time for me to to, to let go and start opening up?
1: Yeah, that was tough, man. I mean, it's just, it kind of gets comfortable, I guess, is the way I can put it there. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, you know, people throwing their heart out, you know, in counseling sessions and to random strangers that they don't know. And I guess I kind of got broke down into it. You know, it was hard. I was hiding things from myself, I think, you know, so it was even for them to break me down. I was still trying to break down my own barriers you know and and it took me a long time and i think um you know there's this one there's this one instance in in rehab i guess i that always sticks out um that's kind of really helped me along um you know we we would bunk up we'd have two people to a room and my roommate was getting ready to graduate from the program and he he was packing and everything he was like hey man can i can i talk to you in the room i was like yeah of course Um, and we sit down and he says, uh, you know, I've, I've really appreciated being your roommate. Um, he said, um, you know, you, you're a pretty amazing guy, you know, you don't, um, we have so much to do here and you, you take it on just as, just as well as any of us, you know, whether it's, it's cleaning, Or, you know, just anything around here that you have to do, you don't complain uh, about your disability, you just do it. And um, he closed it off with saying that you inspire me, you know, and um, that was tough for me in the moment. I didn't really understand it um, because I was still under the idea that, you know, I'm a broken person, you know, I'm a piece of shit. And for somebody to say that was really hard for me to understand. Now, that's been important for me, you know, a year or two down the road when I really could understand that concept that, you know, my disability and me being open with people has really given me an in with people, like a way to uh, inspire, you know, uh, get people to, like, give a little drive in their life. You know, it's just say, like... Wow, he's just living his life. You know what do I have to complain about? And I, I I see the same thing with other people as well. I can say the same thing. It's just uh, stop my pity party. When I was at Walter Reed, and I would see people like I would see people so much more fucked up than me at Walter Reed. I mean, you're talking about people coming back from war, you know, and so people would be you know quadriplegics being pushed around on carts. Uh, and seemingly happy, at least I don't know them. You know, I I just see what I see, and you know, I'm kind of like, you know, what's this pity party about? You know, these people have so much worse than me, and, and I and I can do the same for other people. You know, just by living my life and living it to its fullest. You know, just kind of pushing forward. Um, it's that, that was a huge moment for me, uh, one that I couldn't understand in that moment, but it's definitely resonated a lot. Uh, in in the months and years afterwards, I I remember there was a moment. Um, my mom, she she was out on a hike by herself, and uh, she ended up like breaking her ankle, like miles away from her car, you know. And she she was able to get back to her car somehow, and phone me up, tell me to meet her at the hospital, and uh, she said, um. Uh, She said the only thing that kept me going was uh, thinking about everything that you've been through.
2: That's huge. Well, I, I mean, dude, even you opening up on this podcast undoubtedly will inspire so many people. And I think a lot of people will face things in their lives, potentially even in this audience that are listening, that may draw back to this story uh and push
0: through
1: I, I really hope so that's why I'm here, you know I just totally. want I want to be able to tell my story and kind of hope people can pull something from it, you know
0: with all these layers to the onion of your story it, it's crazy we haven't even really unpacked uh what brought you and I together
1: That's very, that's
0: very true <laughs> you know and and uh I know we've been doing a lot of jumping around, but I, I really want to get into there was a point in your life where you ended up gaining a pretty significant amount of weight and then losing a real significant amount of weight. And then somehow it led you to the point where you realized through telling your stories of something totally different from everything we've even talked about already, um, you could help people in a whole other inspiring way. So I want to go back a bit. Can Can you tell us, what initially happened where you ended up gaining this weight and then can you take us to the progression of then losing the weight and then what brought you to going back to school yeah that would be
1: great and that kind of piggybacks off of like getting that drive back in my life you know what i mean um yeah i mean after so after um after rehab or during rehab really um you know it, there wasn't much uh emphasis on what we ate you know and so I ate a lot. You know, it's kind of exchanging one addiction for another um, type of deal. It's it's very common in addiction, and I think I replaced a lot of it with food. Um, And I came back from three months out in Alabama, 60 pounds heavier. Uh, I was 285 pounds. Uh, My BMI was on the cusp of being morbidly obese, you know, just sloppy, just disgusting at times. (laughs) Um, and I got to the, you know, I was at a physical therapy tra- uh, session sitting on a machine and there was a mirror next to me and I looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize who I saw anymore. And that was kind of the the tipping point where I was like, you know, something has to change. Um, and I started, you know, just trying stuff. I didn't really understand what I was doing. Like a lot of people, I think uh, nobody really learns how to eat in in this country you know Uh, there's no classes in school that says you know you should be eating this over this or or this is why you should be eating this it's we just kind of food is the last thing we think about in life most of the time a lot of people are ready to go to work and they're ready to play but when it comes to eating you know they just want something that tastes good uh regardless of how good it is for your body and so i just started looking online uh looking for different ways uh to lose weight and uh I I, what really resonated with me was a really low carb diet. It was mostly meat, um, probably not the best idea, uh, but at least it got me started. You know, and I was trying to make a change. And in a couple years, I had lost. I went from two eighty five to one sixty, which was like I said, it was a it was an unhealthy diet. So um, I lost a little bit more than I should have. Um, and I kind of yo—I've yo-yo- yo-yoed back and forth um, since then, um, but I've been able to hold uh, like a hold a pretty consistent weight uh, for the past couple of years, which has been incredible, you know. And that's kind of what led me to to Morgan State with you. Um, after I left the military, I started going to college for computer networking, uh, which I hated—I hated the entire time. I spent an entire year in that program, um, and it it kindly it kind of came to uh, came to a head when i'm supposed to be doing my homework for computer networking and i'm looking up like the different health benefits of types of oils you know for for food and i was just thinking to myself like why why, why would i stick myself in something that i i, I can't stand when i'm doing this? i'm looking up food you know when i'm supposed to be doing my work and it kind of changed from there my entire mentality and um you know, I switched schools. I switched majors, and I'm, I've got into uh, nutrition science, which has been my driving force for the past couple of years. Man, it's been awesome.
0: I'm really glad glad you brought that up, Daniel, because uh, you know, question that we've answered previously on this podcast, but it's one of uh, the most common questions that we get. is deals with like you know, passion and what to do as far as school or career and aligning that with what you're passionate about. And for me, oftentimes. What I would say in response is, well, pay attention to your thoughts and your behaviors when you don't have any responsibilities. And for you, you had this responsibility of school, but yet you were, for whatever reason, attracted to looking up oils for the purposes of cooking. And I think it's really cool that you, one, paid attention to that behavior, but two, said, you know what, I'm actually going to choose this instead because I have this natural desire to go in this direction.
1: Yeah, I I think I remember hearing you guys talk about that on like episode five or six, somewhere around there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, it was just me listening to myself, you know? Um, it's been, it's been, it's been such a great experience, man. I, I can't, I can't even put it into words, you know? It's just, just taking that dive even from, from, from step one to step two, like changing my, my career uh, goals, I mean, that was, it's really terrifying, but going through something that's terrifying is so gratifying when it works out the way you want it to, you know, and even if it doesn't, that's okay. Cause it's good to take risk. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it, to be honest, it was quite scary changing schools and changing majors, especially with already a year into my major, you know, I didn't really understand what I was doing. Um, but I just had to trust, trust my head, you know what I mean? It was, it was It was either that be do that or be stuck in a job that I didn't really see, you know, fit for me, you know.
0: I I totally, totally agree with what you're saying. As um going through, I think I guess it started in middle school, through high school, into college, I was always, it was like I was like deathly afraid of science. I always just found it way too overwhelming, too much material. It was just too damn hard. And I couldn't do it. And I ended up going to college, getting a making up a music business degree. Because all I cared about at the time when I was in college was playing shows and booking shows and doing all these things. And and it took me I think I graduated the first time in college. I was like twenty three twenty-four. But it took me until I was just about thirty to get over that fear and um just bite the bullet and, and realize like there are there are all these people who came before us uh that that have taking on science as a major in undergrad or in graduate school uh, and they were okay with it. And again, it's the same thing of, It it is so scary, especially Daniel and I were both, you know, we're more pushing 30 and we're going to school with a lot of, a lot of uh, like 18, 19 year olds that are still figuring a lot of things out. But for us, we have such a heightened sense of purpose for being in school and what we're trying to learn and then diving into some of the, uh, the more like esoteric parts of nutrition and uh, we absolutely love it and and I guess both of us could would highly recommend to people if if you do get that itch for something uh scratch it go for it you know it, it you'll be so hopefully it'll pan out and you'll, you'll be so happy that you ended up doing that but um there there were a, a couple things at least one thing I want you to unpack with when you're doing the weight loss something Matt and I speak about often um and Matt's currently um practicing is intermittent fasting and um I think that, that was a tool you've, you've spoken about, we've talked about before, that you said really helped you. And then even doing a, a full 24-hour fast once in a while, thats something you could get into?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a great tool, I think, in the toolbox of just overall health. Um, there's a lot of information out there that's talking about, you know, the body really needs to go in a fasted state. You know, I think um there's studies coming out that say... Uh, um, some of the survivors of concentration camps are living the longest. And there's no there's a, there's a direct correlation to their, the fact that they just didn't have food. You know? And it's, it's really important to kind of give your body some rest. You know? We work our bodies 24-7 because we're constantly putting food in there. You know, your liver has to continue working. Your stomach has to continue working. Your small intestines, your large intestines, they never get a break because we eat from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep. You know, and there's a there's a full process that your body has to go to to kind of metabolize all these foods. And so if you give it, you know, a good 14, 15, 16, maybe 18 hours, you know, in between, it sounds crazy to some people, I'm sure, I have no doubt. Um, but, fitting your food in, in a six-hour window isn't ha- as hard as some people may think it is. And, you know, it really gives your body the chance to not only rest, but start recuperating. You know, there's a lot of different cellular processes that only happen in a fasted state. Your, your body is actually able to, you know, reverse some of the damage that has happened while it's not having to constantly chew up this food, you know. And it's 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 really important. And I think if if more people would try it, it, it could really have an impact on our healthcare system, you know?
2: I was just going to say, so I've been, now it's what, like four weeks
0: about? We, we're like- Maybe past, even longer, yeah. Right? Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, I think it, a month sounds right, yeah. It's about
2: four weeks. I um, I started with 14 hours fasting, 10-hour window of eating just to break into it and like get comfortable with it, which I found to be really easy. Um, then I just bumped it up two hours, so- then I just started doing 168 um, and that's basically what I've been doing although it it does kind of venture between 18 6 and 16 8. So what I mean by that is 16 hours of fasting and then an eight hour window to eat or an 18 hour window of fasting and six hours in in which I'm eating. but Justin and I, I you know I I've heard people talk about intermittent fasting and and say, it doesn't really matter what you eat in that period because it's you know your body's going to do the work that it needs to do and break it down and it'll take the nutrients and it'll expel the rest. But there's got to be a, a you know optimization that that happens if you eat well in that window and actually give your body the things that it really needs. So part of what I've been working on with Justin, um, what well, what we did work on was we just made like a list of like all the different kinds of foods. So everything from meats to um, what carbohydrates to eat, uh, what fruits, what vegetables, um, what snacks, you know, things like that. And I now have this really huge selection of items that I can pick from. And it's really easy to eat healthy and fastest way because I find that when I eat foods that are healthier, I don't have the same cravings that I, that I did with like eating constant shitty sugar packed like, you know, white, flour pita chip chips kind of things you know like that kind of stuff like i don't feel the same way um but for for me another huge thing about this now is that like if once a week i really want something fuck it like i'm gonna eat whatever i want and enjoy the shit out of it because i know that it's just it it is the minority now of how i eat not the majority Um, and it's just i my point is that it's really easy to do this and it seems like it's just a no-brainer and people should be doing it and it, there's nothing really that hard about it if you know what to eat and you can just like kind of keep yourself busy you know for the time that you're fasting or you know get on a good sleep schedule.
1: Yeah, I completely agree, man, and I think the the main thing you said there was that your your bad food that you're eating is the minority. Like you said once a week, you know, if you have three meals a day, that's 24 meals in a week. Or twenty one. I'm sorry, bad math. Uh, So if one of those meals is not so great, I mean, overwhelmingly, you're doing well. You know, you're you're hitting the ninety nine percent marker. You know what
0: I mean? I think Matt and I originally we talked about something of a sixteen five or an eighteen three. Because if if you're gonna do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Every single day, obviously we just did the math it's twenty one and uh you know if if you are in the majority of eating really healthy meals and giving your body really what it's asking for it should be as Matt was saying it, that should be the most optimal you're trying to get to this this place of optimization for your body um, I actually think it's really wonderful that between uh you know Matt Daniel and I we do have this really interesting bridge connection um Especially through a couple key figures that, that we listen to and dissect and they all run in a group of like the, the, the Tim Ferris's of the world and Dom DiAgostino and, um, Rhonda Patrick. And I'm not sure. I, I guess now we know what sent you back to school, but it was definitely listening to people, um, speak about topics like this and really getting fired up about it. I mean, like a euphoric high of just like, fuck yeah, this is amazing and this is so cool. And right. I was like, I have to do this. If I don't do this, then I'm kidding myself.
2: Well, it's so attainable when you, when you really think about it. And then when you hear the science behind it, it's just, it's undeniable. Like your, you, your body wants to stay alive as long as possible. Like everything in your, like you are made to, to survive, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if it's a simple choice of like eating less hours in a day, which is a great start right there. But then also you can eat like better foods. And you know what else I found? Because I'm eating less meals, paying a little bit extra for like good quality food and produce isn't that big of a deal because I'm cutting out like essentially one meal a day. It's balanced. So I'm not, so I'm not going through those foods as fast as I would. And I can kind of make the buck last a little bit longer. Um, but it's just it's so easy, and and everything that you and I, Justin, have been working on has been, at least with with fitness, um, and nutrition, has been what is the easiest, most simple things that people could do to stay fit and stay healthy? And to me, with exercise, it's coming up with like the kind of routine that we've put together for our our Fun Four Six program, which is ten minutes a day of exercise, if that, if, even if, down to
0: two and a half minutes, you yeah, know, two and a half minutes at a time,
2: and then intermittent fasting which is by no means anything that any of us have created it's i mean as you said it's this this links back to like holocaust survivors surviving longer than other people because they were forced to be in that situation
0: i mean this even goes back to like hunter gatherer times of we were more active which is great so we were out there moving and trying to find the next meal. We were using all this energy that was being expended to catch or trap or hunt or gather for the next meal. And then whatever was there is what you would gorge on, you would eat, and then you don't know when your next meal would come. And I think this is just playing into our, our DNA more so than the current technological advances that have made us uh, week of sorts where it's just it's easy to go to the grocery store. It's easy to walk to a restaurant. It's easy to not have to really pick up a finger and do any of these things.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And to your point about the DNA, like we our our society has progressed so much within the past couple decades. Uh, evolution takes thousands and thousands of, if not millions of years. You know we can't catch up to the progress that we're making. And that's really what set me on this course is that once I started this journey, man, like, it was just amazing to see what some small changes can really make in the health of a person, you know, and just what we're eating, like, I, before I even started this track, man, I didn't really, food was never a thought, like, I never got that deep into it, it was just whatever tasted good, you know what I mean, whether it's pizza, or pasta, or whatever else, dessert, um, but just seeing the deeper level of it, and how it really affects your entire life. has been amazing.
0: Do you have any uh, sort of vision right now for what you'd like to do with, uh, the knowledge and the degree that you're earning?
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a few ideas. I mean, overall, I'd love to be able to set up like a community center and just kind of see people that were in the same situation as me. Somebody that gained weight, you know, they didn't really know how it happened or what to do afterwards. And, um, you know, I, would, I just want to be this person for them saying, you know, I've been there. We can get you there. It's not a problem. Let's do this together and kind of like push each other to be better. You know, I want to really in, be ingrained in a society somewhere where it's kind of this um, this place where people want to do better, you know, and if not, maybe like uh, maybe a hospital setting. I'd also like to work with people that are sick. Diabetes is, is really taking a toll on this country right now. And uh, I think it's completely reversible, you know, I think we can completely get rid of it. Uh, we just need to make some small changes in everyday life. And, uh, I mean, we can get there, man.
2: Yeah. Well, it, the diabetes thing was another big, like, no-brainer kind of reason why the intermittent fasting thing was great, too, because you can you can reduce your insulin levels, right? You can You can essentially prevent certain diseases. Is that that what you're learning as well?
1: Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, the studies are still being done at this point. But yeah, there's a lot of different things that uh, intermittent fasting helps. And it it can definitely help your resting glucose level, especially if you're not eating for, you know, uh, 14 to 18 hours a day. I mean, obviously, that's going to have a huge impact on your glucose levels and your your insulin intolerance, you know.
2: I'm curious how it affects your blood pressure, too. I'd imagine that can help lower it
1: yeah i haven't done any you know i haven't done any work on myself but i can imagine anything like that is definitely gonna create a lot of good health benefits for you you know
2: yeah yeah for sure well so there's a couple other questions um from the group one here from joe hamilton from bath england where i'm headed shortly um He said, well, what a mad story. It sounds like you've been through some heavy shit. Um, And he wanted to know just at your lowest moments, what did keep you going? So the points where you said you were the most lost.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: What there had to be some shred of light at the end of the tunnel in your mind or, or was there not?
1: Um, you know, it was just kind of—I think—that mentality from the military of just kind of, you know, you can make it through anything. Uh, just keep putting that other foot in front of the other man. I mean, there was points like I said, I just didn't want to be around anymore. And but at
2: some it's at some point, you like you had to—I don't know—as you said, you didn't know if it was an active decision, but at some point, you picked up a book, or you went online, or you looked up something, or you heard a story that was like, all right. I'm gonna get out of this dark hole, I'm gonna go fucking be productive, right,
1: yeah, and I guess uh you could really say that the the moment where I saw myself in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself kind of kind of jump started that I was kind of walking through a haze before that, and that at least gave me some sort of purpose, like hey, you know I'm gonna make a change, even if it's the smallest most insignificant thing in my life, I'm gonna go do it, and I was really dead set on it, you know, and that's it's what really set me on this entire path all the way from you know being that obese you know, drug addicted person to like, or I guess that was just afterwards, but just, you know, freshly out of rehab to like being the person I am today, you know, uh, loving who I am, you know, being able to be in college and really pursue this, this passion that I've I've created out of this, just this small little moment that happened. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I guess that, that, that kind of, I hope that answers the question, you know, but that was really before that it was just haze, man. It was nothing, you know, and I guess I was just working up to that moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely kept me going this far. I think it's going to keep me going for a while.
2: And you mentioned, obviously, really wanting to help people. What would you, if someone came up to you randomly and said, man, I heard your story, I'm having a really, really hard time. And you don't have time to give them the whole thing. You have one thing. What would you tell them?
1: Oh, man, the stuff. Uh just, I mean, like, like I've said, like, um, there's nothing that can come your way that you can't make it through. You know, uh, I remember that you hooked me up with a friend of yours um, that kind of went through a situation Richie. very close to mine. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he uh, he had a skiing accident. He lost uh, some use in his left arm, and uh, he would he. I, I don't know if he was super down, uh, but he seemed a little down. And some advice I gave him was, you know, no matter what happens, you can live a normal life. And he really took a lot from that. I could could tell by the way he answered. And that's kind of how it is with anything. You know, you can keep living a normal life no matter how bad you really think it is, how bad the situation is. You know, it, it, it keeps going on. It never stops. You know what I mean? You might as well make the best that you can of it. And that's what I've tried to do since all of this happened. You know, just keep trying to make the best of the situation. You know, it may, be, it may not be ideal you know, and it may not be what you asked for, but it's what you got, you know? So,
2: and, and for you, was it a lot of appreciating what you had? Or yeah. What, or I should say what you have, like appreciate what a lot of people spend their time worrying about what they don't have. We've talked about this a lot on, on the podcast, but, I think that is a, a key element in what gets people down and keeps them down Is like, I wish I had this. I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm halted by this ailment or I'm halted by this experience or I'm ai don't even want to go to the victim thing, but like, um, it's like a choice. Do I think about, fuck, I wish I had that. However, I do right next to me have this really awesome mug that somebody made that I have filled with water that, looks really sweet you know what i mean it like sure. and i i say it like that because i i would imagine that it takes practice to start seeing things positively and starting with something as dumb as a glass of water and not doing the, the half full half empty thing but you know what i mean like this is a cool glass i could have a really shitty glass i have a cool glass
0: <laughs> does that make sense i'm to taking anybody? it so So much deeper than that because, like, you have water. Right. Like, that's so important, man. You have water. Totally. Exactly. Exactly. That's all you really need. Yeah. And I think the point is that in any sort of gratitude practice, you can really start with the most basic of things. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought that point up uh, because I completely forgot it as I was going on. There was a switch. I mean, at first, um, it was about everything that I lost. Uh, during all of this through my, you know, through me losing the use of my left arm and eventually my entire left arm and through drug addiction and stuff like this, you know, I lost a lot, you know, and that's all I could really focus on, you know, and it just kind of, I don't know when it switched, but I, I started, you know, being grateful for other things. And it, it, it a lot of it came from like uh just time healing wounds, but it was also like, like I told you, I saw, you know, quadriplegics. You know, how can you not be grateful for what you have when you see something like that? And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful for everything that I've been through because it's things like this lesson that you're talking about, being able to see what's, what's good about life instead of what's bad about life. I've been able to come to these realizations because of what I've been through, you know, and like, I don't want to, you know, I, I, I guess it's, I don't know how this has been painted so far, but, you know, I am so happy about my, my accident, you know, my drug addiction and my obesity, you know, everything that's happened to me has, has created the person I am today. You know, my, I try to be as humble as possible. I try to be as thoughtful as possible. And I try to be the best person I can because of all these things, because of all these experiences that I've, you know, had the pleasure of being a part of, you know, and not these terrible acts that I could think of them as if that makes sense
2: it's amazing real 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 quick just to to tag that like do you do you know who Andy Frazella is you ever listen to his podcast I Um, I don't know MFCEO you guys ever listen to that no he was telling a story recently so he was attacked in a knife fight and like almost died and like got you could see the scars but um he just talks about very similar thing like he's so thankful that that terrible thing happened because it sent him on the trajectory that he's been on since
0: and his whole life has changed for the the better. I think the important thing is that our perspective, our mindset, the way we think about things, it's our choice. Now obviously as we grow up, whether it's from parents or teachers or friends, you know, we're kind of given these narratives or these perspectives that we just unconsciously take on, but it really is our choice uh to say, Hey, I have this glass of water and that's a really great thing. Or, Hey, I only have this glass of water and I really wish I had something else right now. But it, once we really own that, then we're fully responsible and don't have an excuse in the sense that at from any moment, any moment, it's always our choice in how we look at things.
1: And I also think that's the difference between like being a victim and taking the power back in your life. You know, because I, I, I had no problem playing the victim for a while. Um, but it got to a point where, like, I wanted to rule my life again. You know, I wanted to have that power back.
0: And in the moment, it is just like in the moment, it's easier to do the heroin. But in the moment, it's easier to play the victim because then you're off the hook. Please. And it's easier to put the blame or the responsibility on someone or something else. But you said you're taking control back. But inherently, that means that that comes with responsibility. I think you you actually just unpacked a question that I had of would you change anything um but now the question that uh, is in my head is could you imagine if any of this was different and where would you be today if any one of these details changed
1: Yeah yeah this is a great question I've had a lot of people ask that especially just the fact that I've lost my arm you know uh a lot of people wonder if you know that's something I would ever change and I wouldn't I wouldn't change any of it and honestly I don't know where I'd be um but I don't think I'd be happy about it because I, I enjoy everything that's ever happened to me at this point. You know, I enjoy my life. I enjoy what I'm doing. I wake up every day and think, you know, this is what I want out of life. You know, and to to have any of that change, uh, it just it could be better, but it could be a lot worse. You know what I mean? And so, I think uh, at this point, I can't even I can't even imagine having my left arm again. You know, I'm so used to just living life with one arm and. Having those interactions with people, I mean, I enjoy it. Like, I enjoyed like going to a coffee shop and just bringing up a conversation with somebody and just having them have such a different perspective on life when they talk to me. You know, because this isn't something like I, I almost feel grateful of how, how unique my situation is. You know, it's a badge of honor. Yeah, I, I man, I love it, man. Because people. He, people will be shy at first but then they'll really start asking questions and we can get really into some deep stuff right away instead of like you know posty footing around some like how's the weather and you know it it really gives me an opportunity to get deep with people on a level because they can see my vulnerability show through you know
0: i think that's that is what initially drew me to you i liked the book that you were reading when i walked into class you're the first person i saw you were reading an interesting book Without hesitation, you told me about the book you were reading, and then it was really like the relationship just blossomed from there. We started hanging out. I know, I think after that semester, we went for a hike, and literally, like, we could unpack so many weird, random, minute, you know, small detail oriented or uh, oriented um, uh, things. Anything we would talk about um, astrology, we would talk about the dark web, we would talk about—I mean, like, everything. It went everywhere. And, um, and I've been in these situations with you where we would go and sit and we'd have all this work to do. And like right away, you're talking to a barista or something at the coffee shop and she's like, Hey, you know, you're asking, you know, how's everything going? And like, what's up with that? And, and I think that's such a a wonderful quality to have in life. And I think that's really going to be one of the things, uh, one of many traits that will help you exceed in really trying to affect people in such a positive way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I even, uh, I remember opening up to you about, uh, not feeling like I could defend myself if I were to get in a fight. And had that, had I not, you know, been open to being vulnerable in that way, you know, we would have never gone down this route with all the weightlifting, the kickboxing. I mean, I I have an entire gym in my house. And we built that gym. Yeah. I mean, it's just. it's it's really being vulnerable has really helped me in life really connect with people in a different way than i've ever imagined possible possible before you know it's been it's been life altering and i I wouldn't have it any other way
0: now we just need on it to get it together and get those zombie bells back in stock for you right finish that gym finally you know eight years later the next day the gym is complete come on guys get it together
1: yeah we'll get it one day
0: so to start to wrap up, we have uh, still more questions from the Facebook group. We really want to uh, express you know our appreciation for the Facebook group stepping up and really showing an interest in Daniel's story. Um, I don't see how you couldn't have interest in Daniel's story. Um, so we got one on uh, more with the, the drug use, and then a couple finished with the military. So our friend Maria who uh, lives in Austin now and I haven't seen in like over a decade, but even her story is amazing. She's a great person. Um, She's curious about your thoughts about safe injection centers. um, And do you think they would uh, enable or ultimately help uh, people who were in your position at one point?
1: Yeah, I have a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, unpopular opinions uh, in this realm, I guess. Um, I think safe injection is is, is a great idea. Um, I remember using dirty noodles uh, when I was back in my addiction just because we didn't have, you know, any sources for clean ones. And I didn't know if these people had disease. Yeah, it was, it was terrifying, you know. And thank goodness when I went to treatment, you know, I got tested and I was fine. Uh, but it could have been c- the complete opposite. You know, I could be living with something that I, I made a split decision uh, choice with because I was doing drugs and I could just couldn't stop myself, you know. And so I do think that safe injection sites would be a great idea. Now, on the flip side of that is nobody wants to live in a neighborhood that's right next to a safe injection spot. So what do you do with that? I don't don't know. Um, But I do think we need to start taking the stigma out of drug addiction. It's the only way we're going to fix this thing. We can't fix something that we don't want to talk about, you know. And so if we can get people to feel safe and get people in a spot where you can start putting counselors there, say, hey, you know, if I know what you're doing. What you're doing now, but if you want to get help, you know we're right here. You know, I think that would that would that would create so many more opportunities. You know,
0: I could see you doing work like extensive work, um, drug related, with Doctor Carl Hart, and I think that that is a figure that you and I have, have spoken about, and someone who sold drugs when he was younger and then went on to get a PhD, and he teaches uh, at university level in Ivy League schools, and he's traveled around the world, and he said he's done drugs with everybody. Uh, you know, from all the different walks of life. And he's a big advocate for, um, I think, is it like the, the Swedish way where everything is now legal?
1: I think that's in uh, Portugal. Portugal has been on the forefront of legalization. I uh, When I was saying unpopular opinions, that's my opinion is that every drug should be legal. Not only should it be legal, we should make it in country, tax it, regulate it, and let everybody have access to what they're already doing anyway. They're just getting it from uh, Mexico or Afghanistan, you know? And, ISIS wouldn't be able to make so much money if they weren't selling their, their, their poppy plants to make heroin. I mean, that's just the, the idea of it. We're, we're exporting all of our money through drug addiction. You know, none of that's staying in house. If we just make it ourselves, you know, create centers where people can go do drugs and, like I said, set up counseling stations there where people, if they need to get help, they can go there and get it as well. And we'll create a great revenue for ourselves in in a market that already exists,
0: whether it's illegal or not. It would also, uh, create less of, um, like variants and you would actually know what you're getting.
1: Completely agree. I mean, we're having so many people die in Baltimore due to late, uh, fentanyl laced, uh, heroin. It's, it's incredible. And the fact that we're not even thinking about, you know, regulating our own is 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 crazy. When we have these pill mills all across the country just pushing drugs out like it's like it's their job, you know, it's just so insane. Uh, the entire this entire war on drugs has been a complete failure, and I, I'll be happy when it's over. You know.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, and I think the value, at least in this, is that we're doing our part and actually discussing it. And and I think sometimes that's. Why things don't evolve uh, is because it's not talked about and discussed with different points of views in a respectful way. I'm not sure if Matt or Daniel or anyone else listening watches the show Adam Ruins Everything, but I know Jordan does. And if you haven't seen the episode on, I think it's drugs or pharmaceutical drugs or street drugs, something of that nature, he really breaks down everything that Daniel is talking about from how people get addicted to these prescription drugs and then how they end up using the street drugs and how you can make such distinct, um, connections between the street drug and the prescription drug and, and everything in between. And it's, I would urge people to really check that out and get more into the conversation of this. Yeah. I mean, we literally could spend a lifetime of creating podcast content around this. Um, I want to transition over to Austin Trammell, who's currently serving in the army. So we want to thank him for his service and uh, he's asking, uh, assuming you're out, Daniel, um, what are some tips you have for somebody when they transition out of the Army? And obviously this is of interest to him because at some point he will walk that path.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I had a, I, I had a really good opportunity when I got out just because the, the unit I was with really walked me through every step. Uh, but the first thing I would say is that um, before you get out, uh, make an appointment for every single ache and pain that you've ever had in your career, in your life. I don't care how small it is um, because if that flares up 20 years from now and it wasn't recorded that it happened in the military, they're not going to pay for it. Um, so you need to, to to record everything on paper that way just in case something does happen. You have it on paper saying that you know this happened during your service and you're going get, to get taken care of. Uh, the next thing I would say is just make sure you get all your paperwork together. Make sure you have a DD 214 before you get out because that's it's it's your retirement papers, and, and some people leave without really getting all the right paperwork, and then they're kind of screwed when they have to either find a job or something like that. I, I would also say start looking for a job before you get out. Uh, don't wait until afterwards. That's uh, it's a great recipe to just do nothing for a while, which is what I did. You know, I, I sat around for about a year and, and was really not doing anything uh because I wasn't proactive in in what my next step would be um and I think if you take care of those couple of things you you'll be great man um whether it's even either uh chasing college with the GI bill or just going straight to uh some government work sign a make a USA uh gov or USA jobs um account and start looking for a government job Uh, either one would be great, man. Whatever you want to do, just make sure you have a plan before you get out. You know, there's a lot of homeless vets. There's a lot of vets committing suicide. Um, And it's because I think sometimes they're just not prepared or they just don't have the mentality for it. And you want to make sure you get as much done before you get out as possible, man.
0: Awesome. That's really, really actionable advice. Um, And again, we want to thank you, Austin, and and anyone listening right now uh, who is currently serving or has in the past uh finally we're going over to Jayotish uh Mani from Bangalore India uh, who has two questions for you Daniel the first being how has being stationed in another country affected your outlook on war and violence
1: Yeah um my my entire tour um I w- I didn't get to see too many people off base and just meet with Iraqi people, but I did at times. um, You know, we would fly overhead, and these people would run out of their villages and wave to us while we're flying over and stuff. And just, you know, what you see in the news isn't always what's correct. You know, Um, there's there's different lights they shed. And, you know, it's easy for us to talk about all the bad things that happen uh, because there are a lot. Um, but there's a lot of good people over there that have died, civilians that have died from drone attacks, from from mis, from from the wrong people getting shot, from anything. And we wouldn't have that in our own country, you know? Why, why is it okay to do it in another country? And I just don't understand the, the way Obama has used, you know, the drone strikes. I mean, he's used so many. And they're killing civilians at an incredible rate, Um it just worries me that we're not doing it the right way. I understand trying something, and if it doesn't work, though, we have to switch gears. And I don't think we're doing that yet. And I don't know what the right answer is, but we're, we're, we're still kind of at this kind of, you know, just burn everything type of deal. I, I want to see us kind of switch over to something, you know, we're never going to get rid of ISIS, it doesn't seem like. As soon as we cut one head off, two more grow back. You know, it's just the nature of the beast. And so we have to find a way to get after their money. You know, we have to find a way to discourage them in some other way than just mass killing their their people. Because if you kill one guy and he has children, you know, the American devil killed our father. That's that's just how it is, man.
0: And it's the same thing with gang warfare in Baltimore or anywhere else in the world. Um, I guess as far as something like ISIS, I'd argue, I mean, obviously warfare is drastically different than it was even decades ago when it was really a uh, nation versus nation. And now it's really a war of ideology. And to me, at least, it doesn't seem like, uh, as you said, you cut the head off and two will grow. So really, it can't be violence, but I think it has to just be either education or persuasion uh, through hearts and minds.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a really tough road, um, because we we've we're we're dealing with some really irrational people over there, you know, and it's 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 getting even crazy now that we're talking about North Korea in the news, and I just I don't know what the answer is, but continuous war isn't the answer, you know, the stuff that I saw at Walter Reed that really messed up people physically, mentally, emotionally, I've seen it all over there. And that's not what we want for people that we call heroes. You know, we don't want people messed up coming home, th- you know, hundreds of people, if, if not thousands, you know, so we need to make better choices. You know, like I said, it's okay to learn from our bad mistakes, but if we don't learn from it and we keep repeating it, then there's there, there's an issue. We can't keep sending people over somewhere to die, you know, and I'm not okay with that. And I just think it's time to switch gears. Like, eh. I guess that's easy for me to say when I don't have the answer, but there's a lot of smarter people and in better positions that need to be on this thing, you know.
0: So the final question he had, uh, Daniel, what's your biggest takeaway uh, from being in the army?
1: Um, I think it, it was along the lines of what I said before, just kind of knowing that I am capable of more than I ever thought possible. You know, any challenge that I was given in the military. I was—I was not only, you know, told to do it. I was expected, you know. It was—it was, it was not—it was not okay not to finish something, you know. And so, no matter what it was, you know, you get it done, even if you're working, you know, two hours past the time you're supposed to be working. Whether you're ruck marching, uh, you know, thirteen miles with a hundred pounds on your back, and you just just keep like literally putting the next foot in front of the other, you know, going through the gas chamber and having that kind of. Like fear beforehand and, and pain afterwards, <laughs> uh, it it's just been it's been a great experience, you know. Uh, just kind of learning how great I can be, you know what I mean. And uh, it, it, it's really helped a lot,
0: Daniel. Um, I think that's a, a great place to close. And um, I'm I'm really looking forward to the the next couple of years of us together finishing up school. Um, I'm really really looking forward to watching, uh, your journey and where you end up going with all of this. And, and, um, you know, there's very few people I would say this about in our, in our program and in general, but I really hope that we continue to do work together and, and study nutrition and, find progressive ways to, to test it on ourselves and be the guinea pigs and and all that. And uh, I know that for the three of us, we can't thank you enough for coming here and opening up and sharing your stories. And I know me personally, and I'm sure Jordan and Matt as well, we've learned so much more about you and I have so much, uh, even more admiration and respect for you. And it's such an honor to have you here. And we just really thank you from the bottom of our hearts for for doing this with us.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate it as well. You know, I just just the opportunity to be able to share my story you know, I, I really hope people can can pull something from this. It's, this is the whole reason I came here today. And um, really just thank you so much.
0: If, if there are uh, people out there, we can put this out on the socials as well, but but if, if someone is listening to this and they, they want to get in contact with you, is there is there a way to connect with you or some some way to Check out what you have going on.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, you can look me up on Facebook, Daniel uh, Beretta, B A R R E D A, and also on Instagram, uh, X One Handed Bandit X. Uh, I have a lot of. I, I'm starting to post more inspirational stuff on there. It's, uh, different weightlifting ideas and, and kickboxing, and just trying to get people motivated about life again, uh, like I am. You should.
2: I don't know if you already have it. You should definitely join the Facebook group if you if you can, and then people can actually get in touch with you there directly. Might even be cool to start a thread, which is something that we've we've talked about doing with some of our guests, where you open up a thread and people can kind of ask you anything and go from there. And if there's private questions, that's up to you if you want to take them. But you know, yeah, you continue
0: could. the conversation.
1: Yeah, that would be great. I mean, I am a part of the group. I kind of check in every time, once, uh, once every once in a while. And so I, I'd be open to opening something if people are more interested in the story, for sure.
0: Yeah, I think based on just the amount of questions we got uh, in. You know, the past 12 hours or so, there's plenty of people uh, that are interested in connecting with you, and especially now that they've really heard your story in depth. Um, So again, thank you, Daniel. This Facebook group that we are talking about, it's facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. It's a private group, and it's been very, very uh, engaging and inspiring uh, for all of us. It's really cool to see others Start threads and conversations and, you know, all kinds of different responses. And it's like people are helping people and connecting with each other. And it's just been one of the more gratifying aspects of this whole project for me personally. Um, you can even connect with great people like Sean Gilbert from Poughkeepsie. Uh, if you have found value in this podcast, uh, we want to ask you to do a couple simple things. One, if you have an iPhone, you have that purple app. Uh, the icon says podcasts. If you search chocolate croissants uh, and you get to our page in the top right corner, there's a button that says subscribe. If you click that, you will get these podcasts every single Monday morning. You don't have to think about it. And the downloads, uh, it helps us a lot. Uh, also, you can rate and review uh, the podcast in Apple Podcasts. That helps us as well. Again, we want to thank you all for your attention. It is always appreciated. We do not take it for granted. And every day we are doing what we can, both as we record this content and uh, the stuff we do in the Facebook group to, uh, to really earn your attention and your trust and your respect. So, uh, again, we love you for that. Uh, we will have an incredible, uh, an incredibly talented and kind and, uh, Just amazing guest next week. Uh, But we will let you uh, find out who that is uh, when that comes into your Apple podcast app. Uh, Until next time, my friends. Bye-bye. Chocolate croissants, my friends. What did you think of that episode? Were there uh, nuggets? Were there one-liners? Were there stories uh, that really resonated with you? We'd, we'd really love to hear your feedback, so head on over to facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants uh, and drop us a line. And while you're there, if you haven't already, go ahead, introduce yourself. We uh, we all want to be your friend. Uh, quickly, let's go over uh, the, the few things I have to say in these outros. Uh, iTunes, if you haven't yet, please head on over to iTunes, uh, rate and review. That would mean the world to us. YouTube. All of the episodes are now uploaded to uh, to YouTube, so do us a huge favor. Search Chocolate Croissants, find the page, uh, and smash that subscribe button. I think we need 1,000 subscribers before we can have uh, the Chocolate Croissants podcast URL. So yeah, YouTube, that would be huge. I've spent about the, the last month or so getting all of those episodes uploaded to there, so really appreciate if you would head on over there uh, and hit that subscribe button. Uh, And and one last time, Rode, R-O-D-E dot com. Again, I'm using that NT-USB microphone uh, to record this outro. Uh, You can see everything that Rode has to offer. uh, And while you're at it, you might as well snag yourself one of these NT-USBs because you too could be recording an outro to a podcast. Episode 56 will be next week. We will catch you in the Facebook group this week. uh, and, And until next time, I'll channel... My brother, the great Jordan, insane, eh, uh, bye bye.